Uh, today, uh, the scripture comes from Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And so, if you have your Bibles, would you allow it to open you up? Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. This is the reading of God's holy word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven work, worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, Shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Would you join me now in prayer at this time? Oh God, would you speak? Would you speak, oh Lord? Would you speak to us that your truths may be revealed, that your word may go forth, and that it will echo throughout all eternity? Would you take these truths and plant it deep within? Would you shape and fashion us into your likeness? So that your light, O Jesus, may be seen in us, in our acts of love, and in all of our deeds of faith. Would you speak, O Lord, as your church is built, and as the world becomes filled with your glory? Amen. Um, You know, given its size, this letter, Philippians, is probably the most quoted and recognizable among all the other books in the Bible. Uh, The letter is short, certainly, uh, but it's also filled with pithy sayings, these sayings that are often quoted and shared, used to bring both challenge and encouragement to believers. For instance, here are just some well-known verses uh, in Philippians, uh, chapter 121. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, what an amazing life motto. Or, chapter 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. 
I mean, what an amazing saying. What a rich saying that's both a challenge and an encouragement. Or, 3.14, I press on. I press on. And probably most known among all the verses in Philippians, 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Uh, Philippians is a letter that is filled with these short sayings. Sayings that are short, yet at the same time so rich and so deep. Now, in the midst of such amazing content, we have a smack dab in the middle of it, today's passage. Which, in contrast, is a very ordinary passage. In today's passage, Paul talks about his travel plans. Uh, He's sharing ministry logistics. And he talks about his personal relationship with two individuals. If the rest of Philippians is rich, deep, and heavenly, today's passage, by contrast, is ordinary. Uh, It's mundane. uh, And it's earthly. Now, because of this, for a really long time, I always glossed over this section. Whenever reading Philippians, you know, I wanted to quickly get to verses like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know, I I didn't want to read verses like, uh, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. However, uh, more recently, I started to realize that uh, today's passage is not only important, but It's absolutely necessary for our understanding of the gospel. You see, whatever Paul talks about in Philippians, you know, all the amazing ways that we are called to live out the gospel, today's passage shows us what that really looks like in everyday living. Uh, If I can use this analogy... Um, most of Philippians is like a, uh, an assembly manual for a piece of furniture, right? Think, think of an Ikea manual for a piece of furniture, right? It's, it tends to be abstract. Uh, it's not overly detailed. Uh, it's not contextual. It's usually just black and white. There aren't too many words that are used, um, just lots of symbols and arrows and a stick figure who... Uh, for some reason, always seems to be smiling. Um, Maybe he's laughing at us. right? If I can liken Philippians to this abstract manual, today's passage is the actual piece of furniture that's assembled. Now, sure, uh, when this furniture gets assembled, it might not be as perfect as it looked in the manual. Uh, Maybe all the holes don't align perfectly. Uh, Maybe it takes more than 14 easy steps. Uh, Maybe the recommended time for 45 minutes wasn't that accurate. Maybe it actually took two and a half hours. Maybe it's slightly crooked, a piece of wood assembled upside down, but it's the actual piece of furniture. You see, I think this passage is when all the content of Philippians is lived out, it looks like this. It looks like today's passage. This is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, 
where all the high theology and the gripping exhortations that we have heard, this is what it looks like in the everyday life, in day-to-day relationships with one another. And so, having said that, um, from this passage, I want to just draw out three things. Three things that I think will help explain uh, what the gospel looks like in everyday relationships. How it affects our relationships in the day-to-day. And there are three things that I want to draw out. The first is, the gospel affects how we rejoice with others. Uh, Second, the gospel affects how we receive others. And the third point is, the gospel affects how we view others. So first, how we rejoice with others. Second, how we receive others. And third, how we view others. So the first point, how we rejoice with others. Uh, As you might know by now, much of Philippians is about joy. However, if if you read through the entire letter, you'll notice that for Paul, uh, his joy is never tied to himself. It's never tied to his personal accomplishments or his achievements. Instead, for Paul, his joy is always tied to others. More specifically, it's tied to the gospel working in others. This is what he says in chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now, this is the context, right? Paul is in prison. And while he is in prison, he isn't self-loathing. He isn't having uh, pity on himself. But he's in fact excited. He's joyful to send Timothy so that he can receive word about how the church in Philippi is doing. In other words, Paul can't wait to hear how the saints have been growing in the gospel. That's his joy. Or, look with me in verse 28. He says this, I am the more eager to send him. And by him, he's talking about Epaphroditus. He says, I'm eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Again, here, Paul talks about the church rejoicing in seeing someone else, a fellow gospel worker who fell sick but became well again. You know, if you look at just how joy is used by Paul in all of Philippians, you'll notice that joy is always relational. Joy is never experienced in a vacuum by a single individual. But joy always involves others. Whether it's the believer being filled with joy because of Christ and His work, whether it's joy because of other people and the work of the gospel in their life, joy is never just experienced by an individual by himself or by herself. I mean, more generally speaking, right? Just think about the time when you experienced true joy. Not a sense of accomplishment or a sense of satisfaction. But think about the time you experienced joy. I mean, was it not because 
of something really good that happened to someone you love, did it not always involve others? Wasn't it always corporate? Right? Maybe your best friend got married, or your parents recovered from a sickness, or your child did something amazing. True joy always seems to involve others. You know, there's a, um, a description of hell that I heard many years ago that I'll never forget. Of course, it's, uh, it's metaphorical, it's, it's not literal, but uh, this one individual said this, you know, when I think about hell, I think that, you know, hell is like having everything you ever wanted, but having no one to share it with. Of course, that's not what hell is like, but he was drawing out the fact that when you have everything you want, but have no one to share it with, it's, it's actually a very sad thing. You know, I would go as far as to say that joy ceases to be joy when others are absent. The, and the opposite of joy is self-congratulation. You see, more specifically, you know, Philippians is teaching us that when the gospel is lived out, it starts to change the things that bring us joy. You see, when the gospel is lived out, our joy becomes less circumstantial and more relational. Our joy becomes tied to others and the work of the gospel in their life. And see, and this isn't because the gospel, you know, forces us all into some general altruism. No, it's because we've experienced the joy of the gospel firsthand. And because we know how amazing it is, our joy then becomes complete when we see others experience the joy of the gospel firsthand. You know, I think that um, the day that my father finally makes his profession of faith, uh, the day that my three boys become, uh, when they become confirmed, when they confirm their infant baptism, I think I will be more joyful on that day um, than the day when I met the Lord myself. When the gospel is really lived out, it changes how we rejoice. It changes what we rejoice in. Uh, Look at um, Hebrews 12.2. This is how Jesus is described. In describing his crucifixion, in describing his shame, this is what the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, we have to ask, what joy did Jesus have before him in enduring the cross? Was it none other than seeing his father glorified was Jesus's joy was it not in seeing souls seeing nations be redeemed and saved that was his joy 
His joy was in his Father being glorified. His joy was in others being saved. That was the joy that was set before Jesus. When the gospel is lived out, it changes how we rejoice. Uh, The second part, or the second point, is not only does it change how we rejoice with others, but it changes how we receive others. In today's passage, um, Paul gives instructions on how the church ought to receive Epaphroditus. He says this uh, in verses 29 and 30. He says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, if I can just give you a little background information. Um, When the church heard news that Paul needed help, uh, they are the ones who sent Epaphroditus. They sent him to Paul to Rome with a financial gift. Now, the original intent was for Epaphroditus to go to Paul, deliver this financial gift, and minister alongside him. He was supposed to stay with Paul for a prolonged period of time, working together, advancing the gospel together. But something happened. Epaphroditus becomes sick. He becomes sick almost to the point of death. And Paul is in prison. So the present reality uh, becomes very um, meek. It's, it becomes uh, a disappointment. Now, in the midst of this, Paul decides, you know what? It's better if you return home. So he's getting ready to send Epaphroditus home. But there was an elephant in the room. And that's Epaphroditus' failure. You see, the church had sent him on a mission. They sent him on a mission with a financial gift so that he could labor alongside Paul and advance the gospel. But because of circumstances uncontrollable to him, he wasn't able to follow through on his commitment. And that was for Epaphroditus a sense of failure, a sense of embarrassment. You know, I can imagine the night before he leaves Rome, Epaphroditus, he's sitting down and he's talking to Paul. You know, they're sitting around the fire um, and they start sharing. And Epaphroditus says, you know, I feel like a failure. I feel like I failed. Uh, What if the church is embarrassed by me? What if they're embarrassed by my shortcomings? How can I go back now? after being sent off with so much hope and so much fanfare. The church expected me to do this amazing gospel work, and I'm going back as a failure. And so what does Paul do? He picks up his pen, or he picks up his feather, and he starts to write. And he asks the church in Philippi, Would you receive him with honor? Receive him, and he uses these words, in the Lord. 
In other words, Paul is calling the church in Philippi not to judge him based on results or based on their barometer of success. Paul, in a sense, is saying, don't critique him based upon how much of the mission that you set out for him, how much of that mission was actually executed. Don't critique him based on that. Don't receive him based upon his merits, his success, or even his failures. Rather, Paul says, receive him as a brother. Honor him. He loves the Lord. And that's apparent in his suffering for the Lord. You know, once again, I think today's passage is just an amazing picture of true gospel being lived out. You see, Paul, in a sense, he's calling into reminder, right? You know that your acceptance with God was never based upon your merits. It was never based upon your success. It was never based upon your works. And because of that, this should change how you receive and accept others. Because we know that our acceptance was never based upon our own merits, so also, because of this, as a result of this, our acceptance of others should likewise not be based upon their merits or their success. You know, the Bible uses the word grace a lot uh, when it comes to explaining this phenomenon. How is it that the unacceptable is accepted? Well, it's grace. And we love this idea. But do you know when the Bible talks about grace, it not only talks about receiving grace, but it also speaks of giving grace. In other words, grace isn't just something that we receive, but it's also something that we are called to give. And this, I think, is one of the problems with Christianity today. Christians today love receiving grace, but are really miserly when it comes to dispensing grace, when it comes to sharing grace. We know that God doesn't judge us based upon our own works. Praise God. But we judge others based upon what they do. We judge others so harshly. And our uh, standard of accepting others is so much higher than how God has received and accepted us. Paul is saying this. If the gospel has changed your life, if the gospel is working in you, allow that to change how you accept others. The third part, the third point is this. The gospel changes how we view others. And on today's passage, Paul mentions two people, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he calls them both uh, his son and his brother, respectively. You know, for a male, um, I think there's probably no relationship more intimate than that of a brother and a son. And for Paul, 
Timothy was a son. Epaphroditus was a brother. You know, what I find um, so compelling about their relationship as described here is that outside of the gospel, uh, these men had nothing in common with each other. Uh, In terms of age, Paul was about 15 years older than Timothy. 15 years. I mean, outside of a professional mentoring relationship, men who are 15 years apart don't become close, right? And this is all the more the case in in an ancient hierarchical society that Paul was living in. Uh, Regarding personalities, Paul was an extrovert while Timothy was an introvert. Regarding backgrounds, Paul was well-educated. He held status among the social elite. A Timothy, he was likely an average person. Now, when it comes to Epaphroditus, we actually don't have much information on him, except we know that he was a Gentile living in Philippi, a Roman colony. Paul, on the other hand, he was a Pharisaic Jew living in Jerusalem. You know, um, when we look at their backgrounds, their personalities, their interests, there was nothing in these things that brought these three men together. The only commonality that these three men shared was their common confession that Jesus was Lord and Savior. That's it. But that was enough. That common confession was enough for strangers to become brothers, for strangers to become a father and son to one another. The gospel was enough to bring these three people into the most intimate of relationships. You know, Paul says in Philippians 1.21, right? To live is Christ. We read that. To live is Christ. But what does that really mean? How can that be lived out? Well, one way is in how we view others. Where the intimacy of our relationship with others is not dependent on preferences, common interests, likability. But the intimacy of our relationship is based solely on Jesus. To live is Christ. That is what this looks like. Friends, I'm not saying that common interests are not important. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the gospel is so important. It's all the more important that the gospel should nullify any differences, and neutralize any similarities you might have. The gospel is so important to bring seemingly strangers together to become brothers and sisters with one another. I mean, look at how the church in Acts is described. This is the early church. They haven't spent much time together. Many of them have just recently been baptized And they come into the faith together. And this is how the author of Acts describes this community. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All who believed were together and they had 
everything in common. You know, the truth of the matter is, these people had very little in common. Except their belief in Jesus. But, that was everything. Their belief in Jesus was enough to say they had everything in common. You know, church, I think this is a really good time for us to pause. For us to pause and think about our present relationships. What are they based on? And also, what are we looking for when it comes to forging new relationships? Are we looking for the gospel to make it so that we have everything in common? Or, yeah, Having commonalities in the gospel, a common confession, that's great. But I'd like to be in a relationship with someone who shares the same interests as me. You know, as a pastor of a church, um, one of the most common remarks I hear is, I can't relate to anyone in this church. Or, I'm not like anyone in this church. No one here is like me. You know, friends, I don't want to come off as being sarcastic. But whenever I hear that, I always think, what do you mean? Look around you. What are you talking about? You mean all these people who believe in the same Savior. All these people who are baptized under the same baptism. All these people who have the same faith. That is something you cannot relate to? I mean, you mean all these people whom you believe that you will spend eternity with. These people whom you will be worshiping the same God with forever. Are you saying that they are unrelatable? Again, I don't want to sound sarcastic. Because sometimes I actually am. But I ask the question, friends, unity in Jesus, is that not enough? Is that not enough to be connected, to be related to one another? I mean, so you're actually saying you want to be in fellowship with people who have the same background as you, who have, who, people who have the same personality as you, people who have the same struggles as you, people who have the same interests as you, people who read the same books on parenting as you, people who go to the same gym as you, I mean, people who enjoy the same movies. Is that what you're looking for? Uh, if that's you, you're not going to find it because you're basically looking for yourself. You know, I have to admit too, sometimes I don't believe in this enough myself. Sometimes I don't believe enough that the gospel should change the way we view others. In a way that it radically changes the way in which we view others, where, where, we, where strangers can, can become brothers, where strangers can become uh, father and son, uh, mother and daughter. So yeah, sometimes I don't believe this enough myself too. You know, if I can peel the curtain just just back a little and um, let you in um, on just how you know we do things, um, when whenever we here at ELM, whenever we make new community groups, um, we try to make it so that the people inside each group are, are compatible. Uh, you know, as, as the leaders are sitting around this room, um, 
we think about our congregants and we think about life stage. You know, we think, are they empty nesters? Are they people who have young children? Are they newlyweds? Are they singles? Do they have the same interest? Do the kids play the same sports? Uh, are their personalities compatible? Are they on the same spiritual wavelength? Uh, do they share the same philosophy when it comes to parenting and, and so on and so forth? I mean, we weigh all of these things and, and, and we create these community groups. And, you know, no matter how hard we try, we always run into issues. I mean, this is this is really difficult. I mean, it's 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 harder than the uh, it's it's harder than the NFL draft, <laughs> okay. And you know, I I understand that um, I understand that there's wisdom in you know trying to you know put people in a community group that are compatible. But at the same time, you know, I'm thinking, why can't we trust in the power of the gospel? Why can't we trust in the power of the gospel to create relationships that are founded on Jesus? I mean, why do we look for so many artificial ways, so many surface ways to unite people when we already have Jesus? You see, if the gospel was able to make us, who were enemies with God, his beloved, if the gospel, if the work of Jesus was sufficient to unite sinful man to a holy God, if the work of the gospel is sufficient to unite heaven and earth, friends, it is certainly enough to unite strangers, to become brothers. It's certainly powerful enough to unite enemies to become sisters. It's certainly powerful enough to unite strangers to become fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, children with one another. The gospel, as it works in our life, radically changes us to view, it radically changes us. It changes how we view others where we not only tolerate others, but we become so intricately united to each other, where we become family. You know, the challenge, I think, is simple. If I can phrase it this way, um, if you feel closer, more intimate to a fellow Christian who shares common interests with you, than to another Christian who doesn't have anything in common with you. If you think that a Christian who has common interests with you is closer to you than another Christian who doesn't have anything in common with you, then would you ponder again this morning what it means when Paul says, to live is Christ. It means Christ is everything. The way in which I live, the rubric of my life, the outlook of my life, the worldview that I have, the lens in which I view this world is based solely upon Christ. Again, this is where the rubber meets the road, where the gospel works in your life and it begins to transform the relationships that you have with others. 
you know, if I can just end uh, with this um, just personal story. Um, over a month ago, uh, my spiritual mentor, my spiritual father, uh, he passed away uh, from the coronavirus. Uh, this man was a spiritual father to me in every single way. Uh, he baptized me. He uh, officiated uh, my wedding. Uh, he even laid hands on me, ordained me, when I entered the pastorate. Uh, this man guided me spiritually every step of the way. And outside of our relationship in Christ, there was no bond or kinship. He didn't know my grandfather or my father. But he cared for me like a spiritual father. You know, and about 10 years ago, um, you know, I was in grad school at the time. And uh, he had heard through someone else that um, I was struggling. Uh, I was struggling to make ends meet. Our family was going through a difficult time. Uh, I was working two to three jobs taking up side jobs, working uh, night shifts, and just barely scraping by. One day he calls me into his office and he says, Why didn't you come to me? Why didn't you share this with me? And he hands to me this envelope and he says this, I've been saving this up to give to my son, but I want to give it to you. Because you need it. You know, when he handed me that envelope, I said, I can't take this. This is for your son. And he responded immediately by saying, You are my son too. Take this. You know, that was for me um, a picture, a glimpse of gospel living where he considered me not as a alibi, where he saw me um, not as someone that, um, that, um, that I can be indebted to, that he could use, but he saw me as his son. Friends, this is the way in which the gospel begins to change us. It changes our relationships with one another. Where we view relationships not as business, not as transactional, not as what can you do for me? How can you add to my pedigree? But the gospel begins to change how we view others, how we accept others, and how we rejoice with others. Would you now allow this? to really sink in deep, take effect. And would you ponder again this morning what it means when we say, to live is Christ. Join me in prayer at this time.